Hi, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to figuring out what goes into making great albums. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present Inside the Album, where we get to go deeper on how your favorite artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the musicians and the team behind them that helped craft these records while getting to know the little secrets that go into making great music. On this episode, we discuss Wilder Woods' self-titled debut album. Wilder Woods is the solo project of Bear Reinhardt, who is better known as the frontman of the American Christian rock band Need to Breathe. While he may have come from a town named Possum Kingdom, South Carolina, he rose on out from that land to make six albums with the group that would see him touring the world with everyone from Taylor Swift to Tim McGraw to Switchfoot. Despite Need to Breathe being a group who evolved their sound over those records, time came for Bear to step out on his own. So he took on the moniker of Wilder Woods, which he named after his two sons. He burst on the scene with two singles in 2019, but did not reveal his identity immediately, and speculation flew all over the place as to who the person with this huge voice and unique sound could be. Soon his identity was revealed, and his self-titled debut was announced, and has been making waves with fans as many of the songs on this record pick up traction with a whole new audience. I sat down with Bear this summer in a cool writing room at Atlantic Studios, and we got to chat about this record while escaping the record New York heat. He's going to start us off by telling us why he wanted to make a solo record instead of another Need to Breathe record. I've always wanted to do a solo record. I think anybody who has a band or an established kind of thing, once you've done it, you know, a record, maybe two, <laughs> you know, you start thinking like, man, it'd be cool to play with other people. It'd be cool also to be the boss. You know, I mean, a band is a democracy and it's like takes a long time to make any decision and all those things, which also makes a band great. But another way, just like, man, I just, it'd be fun to do something different. So I, I put it off for a long time for a lot of reasons. I mean, the biggest reason the band was really busy. You know, we I think we were doing 150 shows a year or something like that. So it really became more like possible in the last few years where we started doing bigger shows and less shows. So then it seemed like half the year I was able to go home and I sort of freak out after I'm at home for more than a week and not working. I just haven't gotten used to that in adult life. So I think that's kind of where I started to get like, man, I've got to do something. And I didn't know what, you know, I, honestly, the goal of making the the solo project and, and even coming up with the name for Wilder Woods and all that was based on finishing the project. Really? It was like, I read this book, War on Art. One of the best. Yeah. And I, for me, what that, what my takeaway, there's a million takeaways, but the biggest one in terms of like a practical re thing was that I hated doing demos. I was like, I don't want to engineer things. I just felt like I always was so slow at it and I didn't like what I got at the end. And, um, and so I let that sort of be an excuse of why not to do a solo record. It's like maybe these demos, I lived in Charleston at the time, which there are studios there and some musicians, but it's not like a Nashville or somewhere like that. So I think I did that. So my first part like how I stepped into it was I, I was like I'm just gonna show up and work and if that means learning how to do this logic or whatever you know obviously made a bunch of records before but just like having to do it myself my neighbor had a sort of tiny house garage situation I was like can I use that as an office for the next and actually for probably three or four months started going in there and just knocking out songs and and trying to learn the craft a little bit listening to the demos and going back and working on the on the ones and so that's kind of how I think it started and then I did not think it would be as big of a deal as it's become. I definitely didn't have major label in mind when I was writing the songs. I didn't have a tour in mind. It was like, let me just do this as an exploration of this art and scratch an itch and just, you know, we'll see what happens. And it kind of gradually became a thing that it is. When you come from an established band, there's obviously so many expectations and so many lessons learned. So I had Bear reflect on what those lessons learned looked like when coming into this project. 
just coming up, I was in a band, and and in the band we always had. I mean, our bass player is great engineer. Seth was always great at that. So it was like we kind of worked on things around him. He built the demos up. We knew our way around the computer, but we weren't running it. I think over the last few years, everybody has started to do their own demos at home, and everybody's kind of. I mean, in the band, they've everybody's gotten better at it. For me, I just hated that. I I, I kind of had talked myself into like I don't have a good ear for mixing. I don't have like I have a I'm in the moment. I need my hands on the thing, or it doesn't count. And some of those I think were just excuses in a lot of ways and you know what was weird about my demos because of how bad I was at it or whatever was also what made it unique in a way and so I just kind of gave into that I think so some of this stuff was like drums probably the hardest thing for me like putting a bunch of guitars down on there or like getting the textures was pretty easy but if like actually having beats down was really tough there's something great about being confused when you're trying to work on music and when you get good at something you start to get better and better at it and somehow like the essence you start to lose that I guess when I was young I always thought bands as they got older sucked more you know it's just like that's just the way it is they get they get better at what they do and now it's like it's not as rock and roll anymore it's like math and they're just they're doing it for their own selves it's like so I always thought it was like that and and it's funny how it kind of is like that you just I don't think that I think bands can make great records late in their career but I do think it's harder in some ways to not to like get out of the same rut. So I think there was some things like that when we first started out. We were from a small town, and when we got signed like Atlantic, I mean, we didn't we could we barely could even come up here and eat, you know, like without getting embarrassed about how southern we were. So I think the idea of us knowing what was going on in the music business was actually crazy too. We just didn't know anything about it. We knew no other bands that were signed. We didn't know how to run pedals. We didn't know like we just. We were totally clueless. There was something beautiful about the music we made during that time. It's just like, it's clueless kids, you know, garage band style. And so I tried to emulate that as much as possible by, A, me trying to do things like in Logic that I would never do, just programming beats and stuff like that. There's beats that make the record, but like the process of like, oh, it'd be fun to try to cut it up this way or whatever. And then I think working with people that scared me was probably the best part of this process. I, I would go into a room and I was looking for people that did things differently than me. Like, they took a left when I was thinking right, you know. And ultimately, I think finding the producer for this was based on that. You know, I didn't go to a, some big name. of The guy I chose had never even made a full record outside of his own band's records, you know. That would not be a thing that Atlantic would normally warrant or condone, you know, but at the same time was right for me. The results of Gabe and Bear's collaboration are obviously amazing. The second you hear this record, you know there's something special going on. But it's funny because it didn't seem like it was going to work at first. His name's Gabe Simon. Brilliant. I mean, I, th I honestly think... I think he's going to be one of these guys like we're going to see him on a ton of records really soon. I think I went over to write with him. The A&R guy from Atlantic, Scott Steve, was awesome. I've had good experiences here, but it was a great experience. We actually listened to music together. It was like he was in Nashville. I just moved to Nashville. And he said, go write with this guy and just see how it goes or whatever. And he's like, yeah, you're probably not going to like him. <laughs> and Gabe is, is a character. It's a loud character. I'm pretty serious. Yeah, he just said he's going to be off the walls. I don't know. Like he's just he's kind of crazy. He talks a lot. He's loud you know he's like and that doesn't seem like it's going to fit your personality and the whole thing and so I get there and we wrote one of the songs from the record Electric Woman we wrote the first day and, and it, he was like that he was in and out like his, his stuff was going on in his house you know it's like oh the painters are coming by and this and that it's like one of those crazy but when I left the demo we had I was like this is scratching the surface of the sound it may not be the sound yet but we're heading the right direction and then I didn't commit to it even then I was like let's do three songs or four songs together I think the first day we were in the actual studio working on the first few songs 
songs, the work he did before leading into it, sort of pre-production work. So we had we had kind of demoed the songs together, and his process is pretty like late night binge kind of brings in all these crazy ideas and I'm like that one's cool that one's cool and the rest of that let's no you know that first couple of days the combination of how wild that stuff was imaginative it was and how good of a musician he was and I knew like man I really need partners in that you know I want to we'll obviously hire a band to play and I've got people for that but like in terms of like what are these guitar parts what are the signature Waterwood sounds all that stuff so he was that and then what's crazy over the process we became really good friends and now we're thick as thieves it's like funny that it started that way it's like you guys are probably not gonna like each other and this probably won't work out but now it's been awesome and now i'm gonna bring gabe into the conversation so he can talk about how he saw their relationship bloom bear and i were kind of set up on a creative blind date his label a guy named steve robertson put us together he's an a&r guy there he's kind of a legend he's been around for about 21 years at atlantic when they started putting together this record bear was kind of going around trying to find some people that he liked working with and Bear showed up at my house one day. We were just supposed to write a song. And it kind of just, we liked the way that we both thought in the room together. And it was very natural. But at the same time, we were kind of doing things that neither of us have ever done before. It wasn't We weren't trying to revolutionize anything, but we were just like kind of thinking about things differently than we had both thought creatively about in the past. And it was just really cool, natural. And we kind of weren't sure if we were going to get along because I'm pretty hyperactive and she's pretty chill. But it worked out. We come from different worlds, so... Where Bear might have grown up with Sam Cooke, I grew up with Radiohead. So it's like already like that's fundamentally a difference in the way that we think about music. Where Bear might be like, let's track the acoustic guitar. I might like, well, cool, let's track the acoustic guitar. Then let me chop it up and then make it sound like I ran it through a tape machine. And then take that tape machine and wrap it up again and then pitch it down a full step. And then uh, gate it really, really, really hard until you can barely hear the guitar. But it sounds like... And all of a sudden, that's the rhythm instrument. You know, it's like we tried weird things that were normal things, but then made weird. This record has such a unique sound that recalls both sounds new and old. So I was curious about how they came to that point. One thing that we set out not to do was we're like, it just can't be Americana. I love Americana. I think the band was rooted in some of those things and the folk things. And I think Need to Breathe was. So Wilderwoods, I wanted to stay away from that completely. And also felt like the songs didn't match that. But it was like, it might be easy for me to go back and put it on acoustic or whatever. So that was really important to us. I think we started steering towards like, look, if we're going to do a ballad with an acoustic, let's make it Redemption Song. So we kept pulling up you know, Marley as a reference. It's like, let's put a little backbeat in there. Let's put a little bit of space around the vocal. That's just, let's make it, I guess, atmospheric a little bit more as opposed to kind of in your face or dry. That definitely limited us in a way, in a, in a good way. It was like, okay, we can't, there's certain sounds, any, you know, sustain on guitar. It's like, that's out. Like, we, we can't have that, you know? So we need space in this mix. So like, if anybody's playing a note longer than, you know, two beats, like, get out of there. So that's kind of how we, you know what I mean? We limited ourselves, forced ourselves in some ways to kind of keep that feeling. And I think that spoke to kind of like, we stayed away from B3s and stuff like that, unless they were like really chimey and high endy or, um, you know, it just, it, the Mellotron couldn't be straight in. Like we had to be pretty like affected if that we were going to do something like that. So drums were the main thing that was like, let's keep the drums like in the live room and totally real bass, good tone. The stuff around it needed to be interesting and not, I think, just space filler, you know. I then asked them to talk a little bit more specifically about how they shaped the songs to make this unique sound. 
I definitely did a lot of other songwriters. A lot of sessions where I spent probably two weeks first time. So after I had probably written 30 or 40 songs for Wild Woods, I go up to Nashville. I'm like, I'm going to write the remaining ideas I have with some different writers. You know, did 10 days in a row or something crazy like that. Got back. I was like, I'm closer, but now it's like there's a song I got out of those 10 days or something like that. But now I'm getting the vibe. Like, I think the crux of it for me was finding the sound, just the hardest part. Like, I sort of took that for granted. Like, band finds its sound just by being on the road and it just happens, you know. This was like some sort of search in the dark, you know. And the song Sure Ain't, I actually wrote that. This guy, Josh Bruce Williams and Andy Albert. That song, when the demo started coming back and then Gabe kind of messed with it the first time, I was like, I think we have the sound. This is the window into the house. I wanted a, we kept using the term smoky soul sort of thing. And it's like basically the the beginning of Walk On By, the Isaac Hayes track. We were like, our record has to feel like that feels. You know, anytime you put that on, people just like sink down in their chair. They just can't. It's like, it's a heavy and there's something sexy about it. So on that track there, the guitar part that was in there was interesting guitar part. But the way he, he kind of cut it up in a sample played it down real but then like cut it up as if you would a beat or something like that a break beat and so like part of the is reversed and then part of it has this um we used a vinyl pedal that basically kind of gives you that sort of thing it's a chase bliss warp vinyl to get nerdy on you when we got that i was like okay that's a modern element to this soul stuff that we have like let's screw with it if you're wondering what might happen if the space between us close drums when they came in we had a guy darren king he played on he was a mute math drummer my god one of the best in the game so he comes in and he plays over that track there was that kind of thing it was like man in some ways he plays in like a hip-hop sort of way i know he does work with kanye and stuff now but like he played that like a busy kind of soul way you know which is a different you know than you would think so i think it was a melding of those things it was also like we need to build my voice is a big strong loud thing and we need to build the moments like that so that song probably is the quietest song in the verse and the loudest note you know so it was like this is the magic we need to find like another thing vocal style was like a big thing for me I just kept emulating Jim James in the sense that the phrases are shorter and the reverb catches and it goes long that wouldn't traditionally be something I'd done before a lot of the phrasing I think like the beginning of that song no I know that you're not asking like these really like kind of like sort of R&B's Motownish kind of you know enunciations was a big part so I think all of those things together kind of made I was like okay now we've got a framework, you know, we know where this stuff is supposed to live. Now we've got to find the songs that, you know, aren't there for that. And also, so that was a big breaking point, I think. While we've discussed a bunch of the collaborators on this record already, if you read the credits, you realize we've just touched the surface. Here's Bear talking a little bit more about who else worked on this record. Some friends that played on the record, uh, there was a guy, David Leonard, who actually used to be in our band a long time ago. We, I went to his place and wrote some in Franklin, Tennessee. Like Jeremy Latito is a drummer I've known, you know, producer in, in Nashville that is insane. I mean, percussion guy and also very like just one of the most 
tasteful music guy. He's kind of like when you do a live take of a song in a room, like some, a lot of these we actually did like three takes of. And it's like, okay, that's it. We got the vocal, we got the drums, bass, and guitar. And he's the kind of guy that can do that. And also like at the end of the take, be like, man, that second verse he sang was, you know, like he's not so engulfed in his own thing. Just a drummer, really a good sense of a song. Gabe played bass, which is an amazing thing around me. He's just got a sense about it, especially he knew the songs really well. It's great. And then a guy named Tyler Burkham played guitars for the most part. And he was in some bands that I knew. There was a band from Nashville called Leagues. And Jeremy, the drummer, and, and Tyler were in that same band together. So I've toured with, Tyler was on tour with Matt Carney when he opened for the band. And just, you know, friends in that way. And, you know, now in the live band who we've, we've just started getting, like as we're talking about collaborators, this guy, Roger Cliche, played organ and keys and stuff for D'Angelo. I've always wanted to play with him. And so he put the band together for our live stuff. So that's that's a good example of the collaboration. It's like it's from a totally different world than maybe the band would be in, but just a lot of fun. People often underestimate how much the physical space you make a record in affects the record. So I had Bear talk a little bit about where they made this record since it has such a unique sonic imprint. Yeah, we did with two main sessions, probably I think three or four of the songs ended up from my buddy David Leonard's studio in Franklin, which was really close to my house. It was a totally different, two different studio experiences in the sense like this was more classic, like warm room, carpeted, you know, um, kind of like 70s-ish kind of thing. I think of like a Fleetwood Mac record or something. That's what the stuff sounded like, you know. And so that created some challenges for what we ended up making the record sound like. And But we had a great time there, made some great songs. But it just, it, we were looking for that room reverb, I think. And and so we went to this place called Lame and Drug Company, the Nashville news studio. They're, they're starting to do stuff there. I mean, relatively unknown in Nashville and totally not Nashville as far as the way it looks and built. I mean, it reminded me, I'd worked in Sound City before. Remind me of that tile floor, very like, really live room. You got baffling and stuff in there, but not, you're not using it very much, you know? And so I, that really helped. I think the sound, a lot of these songs are like 80 BPM, you know, it's like the, it's like the slow trippy tempo, you know? So to get, I think the drums to feel like they're filling the space in that and keep it simple. The reverb in the room was huge. And so we track most things like that, trying to get the space in there. So yeah, I think the lame and drug thing I think was, was pretty magic. I, I would love to work there again. I feel like it feels like our spot, you know, it, also is super simple. They have this like, I think it's called a tree sound console, but it's like, you know, really, you know, pretty small, really easy for even me to work. You know, I'm like, so it, it just allowed us to work fast, I think, and not worry too much. Like, okay, um, we're getting good stuff here and like, we're putting it up. You know, we approached it some, I kept bringing in Temptations records as references because it mainly because of the panning. It was always like, let's just be aggressive with the panning. Like, let's not forget, you know, it's, it's, I think, especially when you're making a record fast or that's not the way you normally do it. It's hard to kind of remind yourself like leave the drums all the way on the left and let's put the guitar on all the way on the right and let's like give that sort of room experience you know and those records to me when i put them on my car i'm like it blows my mind how good they sound and the arrangements obviously were such a big part of that classic arrangements and so that's what we aimed at i think layman's helped us do that another thing i think that's like huge in studios at least for this project was is the massive window in the control room you know i've worked a lot of places where we couldn't communicate with a band we were like doing a lot of standing up over the console so you're like like kind of dancing and barking the things to the bands like nothing's going on that nobody's seeing you know what I mean
mean like, oh, did you just move something? It's like, no, I saw you move it on the on the <laughs> whatever. So I think that was a, a huge part of making. If you're doing live takes, I think that's pretty important. I then asked him to talk about the actual process of the record and what it was like making it. It was um, the smoothest process I've ever been a part of, and made a lot of you know <laughs> records. We would pretty much know what we were doing. More uh, pre-production is kind of a uh, archaic term, I guess, these days. But like we really demo the songs out. We knew the arrangements before we got there. But then it was more about the drum sound. So I, I, I say we spend I don't know three, four, five hours on getting the drums sound going, and as that's going, we're getting bass and guitar. But for the most part, we're worried about the drum track you know and then we would just play it down i would sing it live in the control room with them sm7 like we're using now and probably four or five of the the vocals we cut like that just like in the three live takes we did we're just like i think that's that's it felt good it's like so really effortless in that way and i would say by dinner time you know for sure by five or six we were into like overdub land on the songs not all the songs were like one day in that way but like a lot of them i would say the the foundational elements of the tracks were live and done by dinner you know and so then we would spend a couple hours doing overdubs and you know the the moog stuff or like mellotron through pedals and all that you know just the candy kind of things and some of that we had sort of experimented with before we got there so it was like we want to put that part down but now through a real space echo and uh, just kind of give it the, the sort of tape warble that we felt like those things needed but really the the bulk of it you know was that and a lot of like dancing around having fun it was the pace of this was really refreshing to me because it we just didn't slow down long enough to to like worry about something it was like okay we're just going with our instinct is this great or is it not and if it's not let's just do a different song today and there was something about that that like by four or five everybody is like in the studio like really proud of what they've done so far and that just i think the morale that was like a lot of fun probably all the guys that were in there all the players produced which I thought was really... Ian Fitchick is another guy, like, he co-produced that Casey Musgraves record, the one the Grammy this year. But he played piano and keys and organ and stuff and some drums on a track. He's the kind of a guy that we had in there in the sense that, like, all these guys know the song is important, you know, more important than their part. Also, just, like, when to speak up and when not to. So there was a really good chemistry to that. You know, it's like the only time that got broken is if, you know, the label came by or something like that. You know, it's like there was too many people in the room or whatever. For some reason, we couldn't get the, like, flow state going or whatever you want to call it you know but it's like that felt that was a really i think magic part about it next i turned to producer gabe simon to hear his thoughts on how the process worked for this record so when we got together he had a handful of songs i did a lot of pre-production in terms of putting the kind of putting ideas together of what i was imagining how the next you know couple at that time was a couple weeks would go in terms of creation um when we started making the record actually at david leonard's place the first part of the record at david leonard's place even that was kind of evolving when we got into the studio i had these full arrangements of at least three of the songs of how i imagined it would look like then i was brought on for the rest of the record and i had about a day to prepare in that sleepless night beforehand I was just kind of messing around with stuff and we kind of came, I came up with the, the rhythm and kind of general vibe of what Shireen became. And Shireen kind of became the tentpole track. It was like, this is, we love the sound, we love the vibe, we love what we created, we love the both modern and throwback element of it. The fact that it really focuses on the vocals and it, like the, the rhythm and the production is, is really key and really important and fun. But at the end of the day, it came back to what made that song and its storytelling so important in that song uh, and getting to that vocal cut at the chorus when he just shrieks like crazy. And it's just so exciting. And so when we found that, we were kind of like, OK, so we have these other two songs that we like from this, but I think we could write more stuff. And so basically Bear went out on tour with the need to breathe for another month and a half. 
wrote a couple more songs, came back, we wrote for another two months and then finished the record in December last year. So like, even like though we had an idea of what we wanted to do in June, the record wasn't wrapped until December, early January. And it was evolving as we were doing that became certain things became more intimate certain things hit harder and figured out what our truly were our influences and what our goal was with the project. And that sounds like a long period of time, but it's weird to think about a guy who has been a part of a band for almost two decades. That's been very successful. And another guy, myself, who has never worked with him before and comes from a different background, took us a minute to kind of figure out we can literally do anything. And your, and your voice sounds amazing on everything. What do we do to make it the best thing? And it just took a lot of discovery to get there. I probably did about four or five arrangements of each song on the record to kind of get it to feel correct. And even in the midst of that, we would have players on certain tracks. We had certain songs that we used. We, we thought we were going to record that song. And we went in there and the band played that song. But then I ended up, didn't end up using that song, but I was able to steal like all the, the sounds that we got from it and use it on another song. So it was like kind of a fun thing of like where even as we were creating, we were trying to find ways to take, if we had a piano part that we loved from another song that we did, we found a way to chop that piano part, like feel for example, on the record. Feel was a song that was written late in the process. It was actually after we recorded everything. And there was another song on the rec originally on the record called Mountain. And we just couldn't get it into the place that we loved. But we loved this piano part that uh, Ian Fitchick had played, who was a great producer, writer, just a great dude. And he had played it. And we were like, we have to use this piano part and so we found a way to like pitch it and alter it and do this weird stuff to it and then make it the intro to feel and the bridge of feel, which then inspired this whole new production element of that song. So like every like I truly mean like every part of every recording that we did was used in some way. You had heard Bear mention that almost everybody who played on the record was also a producer, which can often lead to there being too many cooks in the kitchen. So I asked Gabe if that became a problem during the process. No, I think overall it, it didn't make it better. I think everyone was really respectful of my role and Bear's role and what we were trying to accomplish. I think they knew that we had put a lot of work into getting the, the identity to where it was. But also we didn't like it was the players were played a key moment. We would try stuff. We come up with these arrangements and we're like, this feels good. Can we just try it? Can we get uh, someone who has a different touch to do the same exact thing? Or, and we would do that. And that's what would change the overall ideology of the song. Like Supply and Demand, we had a full arrangement with kind of more of a aggressive drum groove on the verses and chorus. Um, but we had all the same hooks. And then when the band got in there and we had Tyler Burke on guitar and uh, Jeremy Latito on the drums, like let, Jeremy just cleaned it up you opened up so much space in the verses that we originally were kind of shying away from but the way that he played and the way that he chose to fill some of those gaps ended up making it so we'd actually have left stuff on the track which was really really nice and then when guitar came in we're sitting there we're playing stuff and saying oh this feels cool we had cool lines and stuff that we prepared and somebody pulled out a wah pedal and we're like what if we just went total isaac hayes on this and like it got weird and really wet and made the bridge really choppy and nasty. And all of a sudden, you know, we had wah guitar on the whole song and wah became then like a pivotal instrument for two or three other songs. So it was like we make these weird discoveries only because that player was there. It's like I feel like, you know, Bear and I had such a we had such a smooth relationship the whole time. I mean, it was just it was really, really grateful for that. We created very efficiently, yet we both were kind of like, we would sit there and I'd play a guitar part over and over and over and over and over again. And we would look at each other and go, this is the worst guitar part I've ever heard. And I don't know why I keep playing it. Like there was a 
pretty great understanding of each other as when we were working that there was nothing was sensitive. We could just create and move and create and move. And when we both connected with something, we would light up. But when we both hated something, it was very clearly like, this is horrible. Why are we doing this? <laughs> it was great. You know, I got, I worked myself to exhaustion and he put me up at a hotel room one night and bought me a white Russian and was like, go to bed. <laughs> so, but it was like, I mean, it was pretty chill. I mean, like we had a really great record process. With Gabe talking about how often they change directions on these songs, I asked Bear about how many songs were left on the cutting room floor. I think there's, yeah, there's probably 20 or 30 legit songs that, but I don't think we, we were good enough about pretty disciplined with the tracking of them. I think there's a couple of B-sides that we probably will end up playing live some, and maybe we'll put out at some point that felt like we made them in the album. But we were pretty good about that. I mean, a few of the things happened naturally, um, you know, so we kind of painted ourselves into the corner in an interesting way. But Light Shine In is the first track on the record, and that was one of these, like, stream of conscious kind of lyrics that I had written. And so we had put it into, like, three different songs. It was almost like a manifesto. I was like, I want this to start the record, but I don't know what the music thing should be. And I think it was, like, two days before we were out of the studio. Somebody's playing feedback, you know, in the room downstairs, and it's like, okay, I think we got a track. So that song came about very naturally in that way. But most of the other stuff, I feel like we went in, we're like, we're trying to cut these five, and we've got to get them. One of the hardest things to do when you have all those extra songs is to whittle down what should be on the record. So I asked Bear about how they went about that. Yeah, I think I have a, a really good sense of what makes an album now, like after having make, made six set records with the band. I think there's a sense, like as you're writing, what we need an up-tempo track, or we need a track that is a little lighter, or we need a track that, you know, showcases this part of your voice, or what, it just, it's, I don't think it's always exactly the same. I wouldn't say I have some sort of like template for what record you're trying to make, but when you have the first five or six songs, you're like, I start making that conversation with myself, like, you know, would I be miserable if I don't put this song on the record? And if you can get that list of songs up to five or six, then I think writing the other half of the record in a lot of ways is about writing for the holes that you see in the album so far. Every great record comes with some great stories, so I wanted to revisit some of them with the people involved. Up first, Bear's going to tell us about some of the late nights making this record. So what happened is, no, accidentally the first time. And it was like, man, I got to get this vocal in. They're asking for this song at this time or whatever. It's like, And he's like, man, I got a session about love. Why don't you come by after dinner or something like that? And it ended up I got there late or something. And it's like, next thing you know, it's like this. He has a, Kaysen has a studio on top of a hill in Nashville and that kind of like in the woods, you know, grab this crazy driveway. And then there was like a vibe up there that I wasn't prepared for really. And it just, it went great. And we sent the vocal out to everybody, producers and everybody, and, and they freaked about it. And we came into this, we actually did a stereo thing, which our mixers all hated us for, obviously. But we, we did it because when we demoed someday soon, we were playing the guitar on a couch with a stereo mic set up, you know, like Audio-Technica's. As I did, I was like, let me just do the demo. Let me sing the demo into these same mics. And that way, let's just it'll just give us the sort of thing. Let's just make sure we don't have phase things, but let's just see what happens. Well, we get the vocal back and it's like, everybody freaks about it. Because you can kind of hear, if you're listening to headphones, me moving my head. You know, it's like a little bit of right to left, which for a mixer is like, you know, they've got their whole thing, their grid set up. It's like, you gave me two vocals, I don't want that, you know. Um, but 
so we kind of met on at least the ballads, several of the ballads on the record. The louder songs don't work as well for that. But like the ballads, we did some, I'm sitting down on a couch with the stereo mics. It's late at night. There's like nowhere to go. There's, there's a feeling about that. So I feel like that was kind of magic and something that I've always heard stories, you know, like Kurt Cobain's laying on the ground when he's singing the whatever. And I think there's something about that that's super true. You know, I've seen pop people walk around with, you know, SM7 and like get in the corner room, then kneel down and all these like different, get their voice inflections and vibe to be different. I think it was more of a mood thing for me. It's like, just lay the vocal back. I was able to focus in a way, I think most times that you don't have. There's a lot of pressure recording vocals, I think. And it's there's a magic sort of almost bedside manner the engineer needs to have for that. If a vocalist is in a booth and you can't see him, then you've got this, you know, engineer in there and he's like, oh, let's just do one more. It's a little pitchy right there. And it's like, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, that was, that was terrible. You know, I, I suck. I can't sing anymore. And I, there's no like positive feedback. So I think for me, like being in the control room the way we did it and being there late at night and kind of just relax, it, it helped a lot. Next, we have longtime collaborator David Leonard talking about when Bear bought his house and how that story made it onto the record. I think one of the songs that I got to write with him that is on the House Hillside house, you know, it was a pretty special time. It was like right before Bear moved here, he was coming out and we were writing songs. I remember somebody told me that this guy was a friend of ours was selling the house out in Brentwood. And I was like, man, we should just go check it out. And we drove up there and we drove up to the place and the house set up on this big old hill and kind of overlooks Franklin. And I remember driving up there and we walked around and we looked around and we were just talking about the place the whole time. And we came back and immediately we wrote we wrote the song. And uh, it was kind of crazy that and then he ended up buying the house. And so at the time, it, it was just a home, you know, it was just a just a place that kind of metaphorically writing about. But then it actually became his family's home. And it's that made it even more special, you know, whenever I started thinking about putting it on the record and, and all that kind of stuff. And it, it was just that's really cool. I, you know, I always remember that. And it'll always be a part of this record. Every time the shower runs, all the floorboards creep. Or the door slams shut I can hear your voice When the dishes shake In the bedroom window And here's Bear telling his side of the story. It was very, felt very Tennessee, like we wrote some songs like that, like the Hillside House. I moved to Nashville during this process because I was just going there way too much. And, and I went, I bought a house on a hill. This And the day this guy, actually David, my old buddy who's in the band, showed me the house because he, his friend or something owned it. So we go up there in the afternoon. We're like, let's just pick around and see what happens. And, and we went to see the house. I was like, that's the one that's, that's killer. We wrote the song that afternoon. So things like that, I think, kind of defined like, whoa, we're going to keep, that songs we're keeping. Like, we have to figure out how to record it to fit on this album but that's a classic song for that next i asked about one of my favorite features of this record which is the background vocals now here's bear unveiling the inspiration for them we had the watson twins sing who i've always like been a fan of but didn't know jesse balin we had heard a record they sang all three of them sang together on and we we're like we want this because we don't we don't necessarily want the straight like gospel singer vibe we want more of a haunting sort of 50s lot played into that but i think that was the kind of thing and here's producer gabe simon talking about how much these backing vocals affected him i've had very few moments in my musical career where i've been actually moved like i've like moved to tears. We had these three wonderful singers in, uh, Jesse Balin and then the Watson twins. They're amazing. Uh, they, they, 
they do a lot with like Kings of Leon to Wilco and Jenny Lewis and a bunch of great bands. They're, they're pretty different singers. They're not traditionally background singers. They're all artists. But the way that they sounded together was just really, really special. It didn't feel like you were getting like a session singer. You were getting a, like an artist singing on the track. And so there's a moment I, I'm in the we're recording at this beautiful studio called Lehman Drug Company. And I, we're in the tracking room and Bear and Conrad, who's engineering the record with me, is behind the console and the glass and kind of looking through. And we've got these girls. They're set up in the other room, and they're all three singing on these beautiful AA 440 mics. We've got the baffles in between them, but they can they have the windows in between so they can kind of see each other. And I'm just standing there with my headphones on, their headphones on, and I'm conducting them. We're doing Someday Soon. When it drops into the amens that come right out of the bridge... We had added this moment because we didn't think we needed anything because there was this beautiful musical moment. But we were like, what if we just had this, mm, amen. They kind of like solidify what the song lyrically had been talking about. Because I think that that moment at the end of the bridge might have been forgotten lyrically if we hadn't done that. I'm standing there and I'm listening to them sing and I'm just, I'm losing it. And I come back into the control room after we tracked and it's just like Conrad and Bear were all so emotional. And it was just, we knew we had captured something really unique and special. We had gone to a moment in history and time that felt like we were in a different era of making music where 95% of what I do is looking at a computer and that whole day was just looking at singers and listening and hearing and putting that over top of music that we'd worked very hard to make simple and beautiful. And the whole experience was just otherworldly. Next, I had Bear talk about making some of the songs in a little bit more depth. Here he is talking about the song we're listening to now, Someday Soon. Someday Soon is an interesting one to me because I wrote with two guys that I really didn't know that well at the time as Trent Dabbs and Cason Cooley. And now I know much better, become friends. But I went over to Cason's place. I was I actually wrote a song for a soundtrack. We were like, we don't have time to cut this. I, had, I wanted a girl singer on it. So I was like, anyway, spend the first half of the day doing something completely different. And Trent's like, should we, I still come or what's going to happen? It's like, yeah, let's just two o'clock. We'll be done with this thing. Like, come over. And, and, um, and in Nashville, it's very like, you're, you know, traditionally it's like whatever, 11 to 5 or whatever. We had that sort of thing. And so they come over, played an idea I've had for 10 years probably that nobody really has jumped at when I've played. And they did that, you know, it's just like, I think this is cool in the moment. I don't know what it was. But so that song happened in like a two and a half hour period or something like that. The demo basically sounds like the record does now. I end up using Kaysen to cut like probably half the vocals on the record. There's the one thing we would cut if if we didn't get it in the live take, we would cut at his place late at night. So we kind of at 10 o'clock, bottle of wine and a vocal. It's like we would do it. But Someday Soon was one of those where I had this 
lyric idea I was going to write my two boys, which is Wilder and Woods, you know, and I was like, what would I want to say to them about, you know, it's okay to make mistakes and we love you no matter what and shame and all these, you know, it's like these big subjects. And I started writing, we started writing the thing and all of us are telling our own stories and all three of us actually had kids. So we're kind of like trying to do that. But as we're doing that, it kind of morphs into a story about ourselves. You know, it's like, it's whatever you would tell them. I think you would actually probably um, could use as a lesson for yourself. And that's, and that's kind of how the song ends up. So you, you know, at first it's like really talking to someone and then it's like, I, by the end of the song. Um, and I think Trent had this idea about the chorus in there says someday soon worries, these worries roll on. And it was like, what about it's and it's weird it's weird to be in part of rights like me saying that now that does not sound like a lyric I wouldn't if somebody said that to me it'd be like that doesn't make sense you know but something about when you're in there and it's like well, let's turn the phrase a little bit it does make sense but it maybe people haven't heard it exactly that way before and there's something so magic about that because you because after you've heard it now like now I've sung it a few times I'm like oh this is like this is always just sitting there but it wasn't you know it was like it came out of nowhere and I, I think that was like one of the things one of the only times I've been driving home and the writers you know both hit me up like separately and this what they were like do you think we just wrote like a like a classic song or something like it felt it felt really special to us in that way like i really feel like something it just magic happened that in that two hours and it was like whoa this is a something that kind of bigger than us in a way i was on my knees again begging for my ways to change but the truth i X-Bear is going to talk to us about the song that closes out the record, Religion. Yeah, I mean, religion is one of those, it's probably like, I feel like it's interesting coming from me. I think people who are fans of, I grew up, my dad was a pastor, and I've got plenty of sort of beef, just like most people do with church and all of that and guilt and religion and all this and kind of how those swirl around. I think that I'm probably one of those who hasn't totally thrown out the baby with the bathwater, you know, in a way. But I I do still have like a lot of deep-seated things that feel, you know, I think we're, we we just live in a time where a lot of religion is commercialized, unfortunately, you know, and I think even, even in North America, as opposed to, you know, whatever. So I, I think that's something I was just trying to battle with. And it's like, how do I do that through my own story and hopefully not also be disrespectful, you know, in a way. And so that song I think was one of those that I did write by myself. It was one of those, I actually had gone over that tiny house late at night that I was writing in early on in the process. And it's also the, the first demo I made that I was like, I think I like this. I kept putting on a goal sheet. People would see, like, they'd say, make a demo you're proud of. They're like, what does that even mean? I was like, I don't know, but I think I'll know it when I hear it, you know. That was one where just mostly acoustic and vocal and really nothing changed from, you know, the record. I think we actually used the acoustic that I tracked in that tiny house on the album. It's the final track on the record. And so very proud of the way that came. And I also feel like it was important to kind of beginning and end the record in a way. I've always thought that's like very important, like the statements that you're making. And so I feel like Light Shining is the first track and has this manifesto kind of thing about, you know, about how intention is what matters and all these things. And then, you know, religion is this kind of like, man, I've been beat down by this thing. This is some common ground we have. So anyway, that's, I think that's you know, probably my, my bookends, I guess, for this, this chapter. Let your light shine in Let your light shine in Let your light 
Let your light shine in. Let your light shine in. Let your light shine in. Oh, you cheer. To wrap things up, I talked to his collaborators about what they think makes him unique. Here's Gabe Simon. You know, I probably met a lot of people and interviewed a lot of people. And it's like when you meet someone who can sing, you're like, wow, that person's an amazing singer. It's it's too bad that maybe this person will never get noticed or no one will ever care or whatever. The amazing thing about Bear is that Bear has this will that I've never seen in an artist before that has not evaporated with time and with making many records and touring and playing in big rooms, you know, 12,000 people a night, it has not evaporated his desire to work harder and push harder and be better and practice more than everyone else. And even when he's not as good at something, he wants to be at least the hardest working at it. So that combo of probably, remember Steve Robertson in Atlantic called me and said, I've got this guy that I want you to write with. He probably has the best voice at this label I've ever heard. So put that together with that work ethic and that level of drive, and I feel like he can truly will success into existence. And to finish us off, here's David Leonard talking about what he thinks makes Bear unique. Fell in love with the guy. The guy's, he's something that's pretty special. You know, you don't meet many people who write songs the way that he does and, and has a voice the way that he does. And so, you know, I gravitated towards him and, and uh, what he does for sure. Man, the guy has drive like nobody else. And, and he has the the smarts of, of doing this for the last 20 years. He's, he is um, a constantly a person who's, who's learning and trying to grow, and the man's never going to take no for an answer. If, if, he, if there's a hurdle that comes along, he's always going to try to figure out a way to, to make it work and, and to figure out how to make it better. And it drives me. It's made me a better producer. It's made me a better musician. I'm excited for him. Electric woman, put your curse on me Can't keep my distance, you're the power I need Sometimes I'm helpless, you're too far to reach Electric woman, won't you set me free You know you're sending no shots Thank you for listening. You can find all the episodes of Inside the Album on your favorite podcast app. Wilder Woods' self-titled debut album is out now.